This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Oh, Captain, my Captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near. The bells I hear, the people all exulting, while follow eyes thus steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. If you don't recognize these words, this is the opening statement called Oak Captain, written in 1865 by Walt Whitman and published in the anthology called Leaves of Grass. This poem is a metaphor to the Civil War and the captain of the ship refers to the wonderful Abraham Lincoln. It's an elegy of the speaker's recently deceased captain, at once celebrating the safe and successful return of their ship. But in the rest of the poem, enthusiasm is replaced by gloom and it mourns the loss of its phenomenal leader. And when you think about the great Abraham Lincoln, now change, change the metaphor from a country, go to a company. And what does that captain do? In the case of Abraham Lincoln, or most of the entrepreneurs that I know, they unify the organization's efforts that leads them first to surviving. And if they get that right, then perhaps they can think about thriving. And to be the captain of any ship, many are called, but few are chosen. And today's guest, he's not just a captain. He is the captain's captain. Steve Hoffman, a.k.a. Captain Hoff is the captain and CEO of Founderspace, one of the world's leading startup accelerators, ranked the number one incubator for overseas startups by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. Captain Hoff is also a venture investor, a serial entrepreneur, and author of several awesome award-winning books, of which include Make Elephants Fly, The Five Forces, and what we'll talk about a little bit today is Surviving a Startup. Captain Hoff, oh, Captain, my Captain, welcome to A Climb to the Top. It's fantastic to be here, and I love that quote. Yeah, you, I, I think I picked up on it, Captain Hoff, when I watched a movie in 18, 1989 starring Robin Williams called Dead Poets Society. I don't know if you saw that movie, but he, and he was the inspiration for me teaching college. And I thought about that's the kind of teacher... And when he opened a great deal of time on the Whitman poem, Oh, Captain, My Captain, there was something so simple and inspiring about those words. And when I read your book, it all came through again. Oh, Captain, My Captain, just such reverence. So thank you for coming on to the show. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Steve, and I'll stay with Steve here just so we, uh, I appreciate you go by either one of them. When I started reading your book, and I've read a few of them, but when I read in particular, I read Surviving a Startup. And I, I want to get this right because you set the tone on your ship immediately. And you quoted, first Steve Jobs, I'm convinced that half of what separates successful entrepreneurs from the unsuccessful is pure perseverance. Then you went into Elon Musk when starting a company 
I'd advise people to have a high pain tolerance. And then your captain log began. And as I read that, I looked for keywords. When helping others, unfortunately, some have gone down in flames. Some blazed a path into territories they didn't know existed. But I will help you navigate the minefields and maximize your chance of success and hope you will embrace, and here are the key words here, the unpredictability, the near-ending challenges, and pure chaos of running a company. Steve, why would somebody do all of this with all of that warning? I ask myself the same question, yet I did it. You know, I have formed and founded and led three venture-funded companies and two bootstrap companies. I've been in the trenches. So I don't, I don't view this through rose-colored glasses. My glasses have been broken many times. Right. I know what it's really like. And my book is written for entrepreneurs to give them a real sense of what it takes to survive a startup. Not, you know, it's easy to read all these magazines and blogs and, you know, you hear about these startups that become unicorns overnight. It seems right. like they do nothing. They just become billionaires. And all they did was think of this crazy idea. Right. It's not that easy. For every one of those unicorns, there are hundreds of entrepreneurs out there who never reach that level. Right. So what separates those great entrepreneurs from these entrepreneurs who work just as hard, maybe even harder, but don't make it. Right. You know, I see in particular, people want to major in entrepreneurship. People want to be entrepreneurs. Uh, many of the generation coming up don't want to be their own boss. So what the heck? I'll just invent something and be my own boss. Yet right from the opening salvo, you talk about, in fact, what I loved about the book, your very first chapter, Beyond the Captain's Log, is something that you refer to as devil's candy. And I thought that was a really interesting choice of words that sometimes make it so easy to jump on a ship, whether or not you are prepared or even trained to do so. Is that what you were going for? Devil's candy is a word of warning. Something yeah. out there seems so sweet, so tempting that you just have to take it. But you have to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. So there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who say, I hate my job, so I'm going to become an entrepreneur. Right. Honestly, that's not a good enough reason. Yeah. Just because you hate your job doesn't mean you are prepared or even your personality is right for being an entrepreneur. Other people say, I want to be my own boss. Other people say, I want to get rich. But really, the greatest entrepreneurs out there have a single answer. And that is they see a need in the world for something and they want to fill it. They want to give it to the world, give birth to that idea. Those entrepreneurs tend to be the ones that break through. Yeah, and definitely when we study the great ones, Steve Jobs, Musk, and all of the normal ones, many of them talk about this, this thing that's just gnawing at them. They, 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 they just can't seem like, like no one out there is solving this problem. So what the heck, I'll do it. They don't think about the money necessarily. They don't think about the riches. They think about solving the problem. Is that your approach to anyone listening? Solve that problem. My advice to any wannabe entrepreneur out there or even experienced entrepreneurs, they know this. It's not about how passionate you are about your idea. 
it's not about uh, you know what end result you want. What they what really gets entrepreneurs going is that when they go deep in a certain space, when they really understand, wow, there's something here that should be changed. I know how I can change it. And then they start putting together the resources to do that. That is what, that is what I want to direct entrepreneurs for. I like to say an entrepreneur's job, like a lot of people out there think the entrepreneur's job is to come up with a brilliant idea. Like my job is to come up with that next big idea that's going to change the world. Right. Well, I will tell you, you can spend a lot of time thinking of that great idea. But when you go out into the real world, you will probably find whatever idea is in your head doesn't even work. It just works in your head. And you may think, no, no, my idea works. But let me tell you, let me just give you a few companies. Google, we all know Google. When they started, they did not have the idea, we're going to build the world's largest search engine and gather all the information in the world. Their initial idea was very simple. They thought they were going to be a nonprofit. Nonprofit, Google, one of the most profitable companies that ever existed because they were building a product for academics to find research papers online. Right. It was only later that they discovered, wow, there's this huge opportunity. We could actually do this. YouTube, when they launched, they didn't say we're going to be the biggest video repository in the world where everybody will come and upload their videos and find videos. They were actually building a dating site. So they were building a video dating site and it didn't work. Right. And it was only later when they wanted to share some of their videos, their personal videos, that they actually used their platform and discovered what it was for. It wasn't just these two companies. You can go over and over and over again, Slack. You know, we see Slack. The guy building Slack was building a game to start with, right. but it wasn't working. The game wasn't working, but his engineers had created this tool for messaging between themselves. Right. He took that and said, maybe this is our product. So I don't care what idea you have out there. That's, you're just, the idea is a starting point. I like to tell entrepreneurs, you know, your job is to actually just pick a direction. You're actually safer not having a specific idea because almost <laughs> invariably, your specific idea tends to lock you in. You fall in love with it. Then you start filtering out opportunities right. because you want to stick with this idea, whether it works or not. That's why most entrepreneurs fail. So I tell them, discard your idea, pick a direction you want to go, right. and then find the people. The most important thing are the other people. Find the people, the best people in the world, not who you happen to know, right. not who you think you can get on your team with no money. You need to find amazing people that you really want to work with and get them to commit to your company. Doing that will give you the greatest chance of success. Yeah, it's, it seems to me when people talk about their journeys, they don't even mention that. They talk about the app, they talk about the product, they talk about that. But very much in your book, this game of continual adjustments, whatever the strategies are, if you don't have the right team and the right people in the right place, then, then and, and also the risk that comes, somebody can leave you in two weeks and before you know it, you always be ready for that. But I want to change the focus here. Help us understand your journey. Where did the entrepreneurial bug spark, so to speak. And then second question, maybe we can weave to this. How did you get on board the ship to become Captain Hoff? My journey 
it's a long journey and it goes all the way back to my childhood. So I am a creator, a creative person, and I have always been building things. Yeah. So I've been building them mostly for myself. So when I was young, I made board games and role-playing games. I was a game geek, but instead of like buying the game because it costs a lot of money, I would go to the game store, imagine what the game would be like, and then recreate it myself and have wow. all my friends play it. How do you so it was never that? the game I, yeah, it was never the game I saw in the game store. It was something that I imagined. And then it, I found that was more fun to create my own games than to actually buy them. And I also hated reading rules. So I didn't want to read that huge <laughs> instruction book. I'd rather just make up my own rules. I'm invented. And, and we would even make, yeah, and we'd make up the game through iterative process. We'd try it one way. It was a whole entrepreneurial thing. We'd try it one way. It doesn't work. We'd modify it. We'd try it again. We'd try it again until it got really, really good. And I had this sense of satisfaction. I also made movies as a kid. So I was making make over 50 movies. Uh, with all my friends, I did animations, all sorts of everything you could imagine. And then my father came to me and said, son, he was an, a rocket scientist from MIT. So he's a really smart guy. And he said, son, computers are going to change the world. You should <laughs> study computers. I had already found out about computers because, you know, I love games. So I was playing computer games and I was even coding, making my own games. So I said, okay, I'll go into computers. So I studied electrical computer engineering, found out very quickly that I didn't like the engineering part. It wasn't me. Like I liked the creative part. I just wanted to be, I wanted to create something that I cared about like games or movies. So as soon as I graduated, I just, I had job offers, lots of job offers, but I turned them down and I decided to go to film and television. So I went to USC School of Cinema Television and got my master's degree went into the film world. And then um, I actually rose very quickly up the ladder and became a TV development executive in Hollywood. And it dawned on me when I was in that role, I, computer games were becoming more and more popular. I already had a passion for them. And I realized that computer games were relatively small at that time. But I saw that they were going to pass up film and television. They were going to be bigger because they were more attractive, right? Interactivity, this whole other layer to the experience. So I happened to meet through one of the producers in our company, the founder of the game company, Sega. He and I had a conversation and he said, we are looking for somebody from Hollywood to come to Japan and come up with new concepts for future games. I couldn't resist. I jumped on board and literally quit my job, moved to Japan, worked there coming up with all these game ideas. It was a fantastic experience. And then right um, as I was doing this, I suddenly realized I don't wanna make games for this other company. I could do this myself. Right. Like, what am I doing here? Yeah. So I quit my job in Japan, flew back to my home, which was, Northern California, set up operations in San Francisco, launched my first game company called Lava Mine. Hmm. That is what got me going. That is how I became an entrepreneur. What did you learn about yourself through this? You're now on your own ship that takes you from the US to Japan and back. You're not the engineer. You put a lot of time into it, but now you're in a cross-cultural landscape that is, and I spend a lot of time there, it is not anything like here. Were you becoming Captain Hoff at the time? 
Captain Hoff is actually my gamer handle. So ah, I've been, it was what I use, I call, and then it became my nickname in Silicon right. Valley. So right. yes, I was becoming Captain Hoff. I was learning how to build products, how to launch products, how to launch interactive products. So working in Sega was really interesting, but it's a very Japanese company. Right. I was the only foreigner in our entire division. Wow. So it was both empowering and it took adjustment because the way decisions are made, the way people interact, people communicate very different in a, in a pure Japanese company, which is right. what it was. Yeah. I had to learn all of that, which taught me a lot about myself. I had to also communicate with them. And a really fun thing was that everybody in our division would come to me and ask, what do Americans think about this game? What do Americans think of this idea? And I got to speak for the entire country. So if I liked the idea, I would say, oh, Americans will love it. And if I <laughs> hated the idea, I'd it's say, a good place nah, to be. No, yeah, no Americans will like it. So it, that was really fun. Yeah. Yet you came back to the US now. Is this where, and you decided, hey, I can do this myself? Did you start with you in a, a, a Navy of one, and then you had to learn how to become a Navy of two and four and six? Was that your entrepreneurial journey? When I came back, I was dead set to make a game that wasn't nonviolent. I thought there's too many violent games out there. I wanted mm -hmm. to make a game that would help people. So I wanted to make a game that would teach adults and you know, teenagers, high school students, entrepreneurship, which is ironic because that's what I do today right. running Founderspace. But, but this was a game called Gazillionaire. It was all about how to become a gazillionaire. A gazillionaire. Make a gazillionaire. And it was full of fantasy and fun. Um, it's a really playful game. I started with, I recruited my wife. So I dragged her into it. She used to be in film production. I dragged her away from that, said, we're making a game. So I coded the whole thing myself because I knew how to code. And I drew the original artwork and then she turned it in. She transformed it into uh, real artwork. We got some artists on board. We got a sound person, musician, all these other people on board. We put out our first game, Gazillionaire, on our own money, on my money. And what ended up happening was that we actually, it was pre-internet days. Like the internet was out there, but nobody was using it. Right. We uploaded it to what was called a bulletin board. And literally our first check came in the mail. <laughs> and we had to actually package up floppy disks, like eight floppy disks and mail it to the person. Those were, that was e-commerce at its inception. Those were the days. But Lord, a guy called Lord Geck was the first one to ever buy our game. And you got to know anybody named Lord Geck is a gaming geek. <laughs> well, this game ended up in the hands of the QA testers, the tester, game testers in the largest uh, computer game company in the world at the time. It was called Microprose Spectrum Holobyte. And they loved the game. So this big game company came to us, the small developer, and their big franchise that they had paid millions of dollars for was running late, wouldn't ship at Christmas. So they couldn't book the revenue. So they said, we want Gazillionaire. We want it. Hmm. I basically licensed it off to them, but because they wanted it so much, I got to keep all the rights, all the future rights, oh, sequel rights, nice. everything. Right. And they put that game out worldwide, did extremely well. Right. And 
honestly, gazillionaires still selling today, like right. all these years later, because it's a classic. It's like, it's a classic. So people go to like Steam now, download it and play it. Same game as we launch. And because the graphics are so weird and funky, people don't mind. They're kind of like these timeless, weird graphics. Yeah. So the game did really well. We produced a series of these games. And then I jumped onto the internet, did a, a bunch more startups, you know, with other people, people from film school, other people I knew had incredible experience. And after my third venture funded startup, I started, I wanted a break. Like I was kind of burned out, like I'd done three of these. So I uh, was helping my friends. They'd all come to me and say, Captain Hoff, you know, help me with the business plan. Captain, you know, how do, how do I raise money? You know, where, which investors should I talk to? All the questions in the world. And I, as I answered their questions, I realized, wow, most entrepreneurs have the same question. So this was still the early days for incubators in Silicon Valley. We were one of the, the earlier ones. What we did was I put all the answers to these up on my blog, called it Founder Space. Then more entrepreneurs started coming and asking me. So we started to hold events and roundtables where we'd introduce them to angel investors and marketing people and lawyers. Then we got a space in San Francisco, which we became our incubator and accelerator space. Then foreigners started to come from all over the world, government people, executives, entrepreneurs. And they said, do you wanna work with us and collaborate with us overseas? So today we have over 50 partners in 22 countries. And, you know, I, love traveling. So I have been for the past several years, except for the break during COVID, mm -hmm. I've been traveling like 70% of the time all right. over the world, working with amazing people. Wow, that's really great. But on the on the path to all of this, you're building organizations, you're laying or codifying, so to speak, many of the lessons in the books that you are writing. And that seems pretty, pretty obvious, the intent just just if people are asking you the same question, this is how you're building scale. But how are you learning about all of these things that you describe, particularly at the beginning of the book, the minefields, the unpredictability? How are you translating that into all these people that are coming into your world when you may have cautionary tales and you don't want to rain on their parade, but you're trying to be honest? That is one of the toughest things about running a startup accelerator. Right. Entrepreneurs come in, they're totally passionate. Myself, because I work with hundreds of entrepreneurs and I've yeah. seen them go through this as well as my own experience, I can often see they're about to step on a mine. They're right. about to go off a cliff. This company is, if they keep going the direction they're going, they, they will fail. Like yeah. it's guaranteed. Right. How do you break that to an entrepreneur? It's very difficult. First of all, instead of just telling them, I'd like to ask them questions. So I ask, I want them to discover the answer for themselves. People are much more likely to make a change. You know, a lot of people, because they believe in their product, like I've had people come up to me and say, I've been working on my product for seven years, I'm like seven years. It's still not on the market. Something's wrong here, right. you know, and they're totally passionate and they go into all the stuff instead of just saying, look, you know, they've heard it before that, you know, this thing, there isn't a demand for this. Right. I say, you know, what customers have you talked to? What are the customers saying? I get them to repeat to me what the key pieces of information are. And then I highlight things for them to understand. So you're telling me right now that your customers 
you know, they aren't really that excited about this product. It has amazing technology, but they, it doesn't solve a critical enough problem for them. So I try to get, I try to move them into this, this point of view where they can look at their company more objectively. And then we work together to find alternatives because most, no company, I believe no company will die if you don't want it to. Like there's always a way out. Sometimes you need to scrap everything and just start over. But more often than not, you just, you're looking at your customers or your market wrong. You need to find other people and another way to take what you have and solve a real problem in the real world. And actually, this is worth examining because I suspect we're going to have many of my students, they, 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 they want to hear the stories of, of the entrepreneurship. What are some of these common threads like that one? What, what are, if you had to put into a bucket, the three things you see the most often, and that's a particularly good one. They're on for seven years, haven't quite figured it out. What are the other things they should be aware of? They're all included in the book, but I, let's just synthesize this. There are red flags out there when you're doing a startup. The first red flag I tell people is if it feels like you're Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill only to have it roll back down and you're going again. If this is going on for over a, for over a year, something's wrong. Like most startups, like when you get that initial product out there, if there is a real demand, if there is a real pro what we call product market fit, it takes off. I mean, people are coming at you. You actually, you have to run to keep up. So if you are chasing customers, not them chasing you, big red flag. Right. Another red flag for entrepreneurs, your team. Like if a lot of entrepreneurs come to me and they're, you know, they've brought people on board to fill gaps, but they weren't really the best people they could have gotten. Mm -hmm. And they, they don't know what to do. Like, I had an entrepreneur come to me recently and he's like, you know, this person, they tried to figure this out, but they really couldn't execute on it. I was like, okay, you got to take immediate action. You're a startup. You can't give this person another six months. You have to take action today. Let that person go find the right person. You know, when you found the right person, you, you, those people, when you find the right person, you don't have to even tell them what to do. They are thinking ahead of what they need to do next. And they are telling you, those are the people you need in a startup. You need people who are totally committed, who believe in it, but who also um, really take ownership of their job. They just like, they, they know what they need to do and they're telling you and you're like going, yeah, 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 go for it, get that done. If you are constantly finding yourself fixing problems, badgering them, trying to keep them working, it's not a good relationship. Just you have, to, you have to cut those and move on. A lot of times, you know, entrepreneurs make the mistake of being too nice. I had a friend, an entrepreneur, and he had this sales guy who was underperforming. And I was like, look, he can't sell. Just let the guy go. No, but the guy's really nice. He's really great, blah, blah, blah. He kept that person on for a year and a half, a oh, year and a half. Burning a At lot the of end cash. of the year and a half, yeah, burned a huge amount. He can't afford this. Yeah. At the end of a year and a half, he goes, Steve, I'm going to let the guy go. You know, I'm just, he's not working out. He, he let the guy go, but he tried to be nice. And he told the guy, you know, any outstanding contracts that you have, um, you, I'll let you collect your commission on those if you just end up closing them. Right. Well, that guy, went, after how nice this guy had been to him for all these years, went to a lawyer and got the lawyer to sue him. 
because he had broken California contract law. You can't move a person from a full-time job into a contractor. My friend didn't know this. So by being nice to this guy at the end, he actually had to pay out a settlement to sue him because he got sued by this guy. So right. <laughs> yeah. there are a million stories like this. You know, luckily that didn't happen to me, but I learned from them. I'm like, wow, don't, you know, don't make these mistakes as an entrepreneur. Number three is mindset. Mindset. You need to be able to handle the stress nothing ever goes as planned. Like, it's just like your life. Like you can plan all you want. You can be as organized as you want. You could take every precaution you want. And then life will throw a curveball at you. And you will just like suddenly find yourself, oh my God, what do I do now? Some people get totally stressed. Like you need to disassociate yourself with your business. If your business fails, it does not mean you fail. If there's a problem with your business, it does not mean there's a has to be a problem with you. You need to look at your business as a separate entity. Whatever's going to happen to it is going to happen. And what your job to, is, is to look at each of these problems that is coming your way as the next challenge, the next opportunity for you to dive in there and figure out how to solve it. So if you can have this positive mindset, um, you will find that your stress goes away. You're like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to worry whether my business succeeds or fails. I'm not going to worry whether we're the biggest company in the world or a smaller company, but I'm going to do my best every day to solve these problems and move that ball forward. We're going to move forward. And if we get knocked back we're down, we're going to get up again. If you have this mindset, you are set out, you are cut out to be an entrepreneur and it's going to be a fun journey. If you have the mindset where you're self-critical, you're blaming yourself or you're blaming other people right. for all the problems and you're stressing all the time, then it, at the end of the day, you're never going to be a grown entrepreneur. It's going to be torture. Yeah, there, there was an undercurrent to the book, which I particularly enjoyed, which really talked about two things. One of them, as you said, was temperament. The other is accountability and holding yourself as the captain of the ship if it sinks you're, you're going to sink with it. And I really like that because I've seen entrepreneurs, Captain Hoff, they're just blaming the market. They're blaming the Republicans. They're blaming every, everything. But you were so candid about, yeah, you could spend all your time unproductively blaming everyone else, but go look in the mirror. That's the first person you've got to blame. That's what I got out of that. W was that your intent to, 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 to make the reader feel that? My intent was this, don't blame other people. Mm -hmm. Don't blame the world. Mm -hmm. There's nobody to blame, but you don't have to blame yourself either. Right. Blaming and criticizing yourself is self-destructive. You're right. running this negative tape in your head and it's bringing you down right. instead. But you do have to do one thing. You have to take responsibility. So you, can, you have to say the buck stops here. Right. I am the CEO of this company. I have to solve this and I am going to figure out a way to do it. So taking responsibility is what you need to do in a positive way, right? So without blame on anybody, I'm going to take responsibility for whatever happens. You know, I made a lot of mistakes with my company. Like one of my companies didn't do so well. Like, you know, we were in real trouble. I blamed myself for that. That didn't help me at all. Right. That actually hurt me. It kept me from doing the things I need to do. So that is why I'm very careful. But also, it would have been just as bad for me not to take responsibility. Like, you know, at the end of the day, 
you, you are put in a situation, often it's not of your choosing, it's not totally in your control, but what is in control are the decisions you make and take responsibility for those. There's one other thing I want to examine in the book, then, then I want to just change the focus. And what was really interesting was when you hear many entrepreneurs talking about financing rounds, and you talked about almost, I felt it was the cat and mouse between the entrepreneur and, and, and the venture capitalist. But you also made a very cogent point that I think is worth reinforcing, that the skills that got you to develop the game, the whatever it is, are not the skills that's going to win the venture capitalist. Can you talk about the space between, I got an idea, I need a million bucks, and now we're in Shark Tank. What is your prescription for how you go from the development to the ask? First of all, before you go to VCs, in most cases, you can raise money at an early stage from angel investors who'll take a risk on you. But before you go to VCs, you have to have some proof. You have to have put your product out there in some way right. and gotten some feedback from the market that, this, that there is a need out there. Like I always say entrepreneurs, your job is a demand hunter. You need to go out there, find that untapped demand and then prove it to the venture capitalist. That is what they're looking for. Yeah. If you can do that, you're, you're on first base. But to get a, to score a point, you got to get to close the deal, right? right. You, you can get in the door. Closing a deal uh, with investors, I learned this the hard way. Like it took me for my first venture funded company, it took me an entire year to raise our, for over a year to raise our first uh, round of capital. Right. It was incredibly hard. I got some of the investors promised me they would invest and then pulled out at the last minute. Other investors sat on the fence, at, wasted all my time, never invested. What I learned is a simple mechanism. When you want, and this applies to any sales, not just raising venture capital, but literally anything you're selling. Like, first of all, you have to identify the people who really are going to fund you. So there are a lot of looky-loos out there who say they're going to invest, but then they never invest, right? You've right. got to figure that out like in the first time you meet them. You know, have you invested in companies like this? Do you have the money? Can you make a commitment in the next couple of weeks? Those are the questions you ask. They say, yes, you're meeting with them. First meeting, very tough to close a deal, like almost never for venture capital because you know they don't just write a check the first time they met you. But you give them everything they want and you follow up with them and say, is there anything more you need to make a decision? Usually they'll ask for a second meeting. You go into the second meeting. Again, you might pitch it to them and their partners or other people they bring in. Ask them to bring in other people that they need to help verify that they can make an investment. Right. You pitch them again, you let them know at the second meeting that your time is limited. You know, you really want them to make a decision. More often than not, they'll want a third meeting. And you're like, okay, third meeting. You know, this is consuming a lot of time when most investors end up not investing. Like it can consume a huge amount of your time. My rule is by the third meeting, it's like three strikes, they're out. Like right. if they don't hit the ball after three strikes, you're not out, you haven't lost, they have lost. You have to have that mindset. You have to be Good willing way. to walk away from these investors. You cannot chase them. The third meeting is the, and I'm of course generalizing, this is just a rule of thumb. But on average, the third meeting is the, the highest point where you, the maximum chance you have of actually closing a round of investment. Mm -hmm. So when, when the third meeting comes up, you literally, before you have that third meeting, make them commit to getting everybody in the room 
who is a decision maker. Because if there are people outside the room, really hard to close the deal. So you yeah. need to figure that out. Also make sure that they have all the information that they have requested in advance. In the third meeting, what you do is you go to those in investors and you basically say, it's, you know, you present it to them, you answer all their questions again for the third time. And you basically say, look, I need you guys to commit within this time frame, within the next week. Like if you're in, you're in, I'm very busy. I'm talking to lots of other people. We have products to develop. I, you know, I need to know you're in. A lot of the time the investor will say, well, we don't want to leave the investment. We want to follow, or we just, you know, can we have more time? In most cases, not all, but in most cases, you say, look, you can wait as long as you want, but I, the deal might not be here. I cannot guarantee you're going to get into this deal if you don't commit in the first week. If you commit now, you're in the deal. But if another investor comes in, they're going to want the whole thing. Like, I don't want to get, you know, I only need to raise this much money. Right. And I can see an investor is probably going to take most of it or all of it. And then they're going to have their people they want to bring in. So really, if you want this deal, make the decision now. At the end of that time frame, if they don't do it, cross them off your list. Walk away. You have saved yourself. Every, it declines exponentially, the chance of them closing the deal after that. Because if you're chasing them, more often than not, the answer is no. But you just don't know it yet. Yeah. So if, when, when you find yourself in that situation, if you haven't called Captain off, get out. And keep going. Now let's just switch switch into you and your life. You are a consultant. You are an author, and you've written many, many wonderful books. What what what, what keeps you going? What keeps me going is that I love it. I, I don't know. <laughs> I if can you tell. tell. <laughs> I, I uh, your enthusiasm is contagious. I am. I love working with really smart people. I love helping them with their. You know, when I work with entrepreneurs and really go deep with them, it's not just about the uh, the uh, financing their deal. I get into the product, you know, I've designed products. So I'm talking about the UI, the user experience, you know, what, how they're going to market with marketing, every aspect. Fundraising is just like a small part of what I like to do with the entrepreneurs. Yeah. I see it as my chance to really learn their business, learn from them, because each entrepreneur has a different business. Very exciting. You know, some are working right. on gene editing technologies. Others are working on space technology or, you know, new computer systems. So I get into their world and, and I get to learn from them. Right. That's what I love doing, learning. And they right. get to learn from me at the same time. To me, that's a really good collaboration. Yeah, well, that's a win-win. And for you, that's your continued evolution. You have the basics of the skills that you have evolved over the many years and the patterns that you've seen in entrepreneurs. But I have to say, we're in a very different world now. Where, where do you see the world? Like, if we just look back I know COVID has changed a lot. Was there somewhere in the Silicon Valley evolution in the last five, 10 years where just something drastically changed? The technology now is the development of new technologies is accelerating. Yeah. It literally, if you think about it, what gave it this huge boost that we've never seen before is the connection people yeah, make. Right. People are the, the exchange of information. The internet has supercharged everything because now I can be a, a kid in a small town in Albania and literally I have access to the entire world. Yeah. All the information 
out in the world. I can get the best programming materials. I can listen to lectures from MIT and other top universities. I could educate myself to do anything. You don't, you know, they, kids, honestly, people who are really driven, they can find a way through the internet to build almost anything and get the knowledge they can and work with people around the world. Scientists exchange. you just have to have the will, the desire to do it and the, the stamina, the perseverance to carry it through, to do all the hard work to make it happen, yeah. but you can make it happen. That democratization of information, that connectivity between people is, is what is driving stuff. And we're seeing it with the evolution of new technologies like AI, right? AI is accelerating really fast. It, it applies to every business on the planet. Like you can take these algorithms and start to apply them. Those algorithms were developed, many of them 50 years ago. But without the internet, without the infrastructure we have today, they couldn't be put to use. Now they're exploding, right? Development of new platforms like blockchain, right? NFTs, all this stuff exploding because you can just instantly, the whole world has access to this and can start building on it at once. So this hyper acceleration of technological development tied with innovation and business is what is uh, propelling our economies today and what is opening up more opportunities for entrepreneurs than ever existed before. So yeah. a lot of people like to say, think, oh, maybe I missed the boat. You know, I missed the big chance to make a lot of money. No, you haven't. Like the big chance is still ahead of us. Right, right. There's probably even a bigger boat out there. Well, let, let's finish up then. What you're suggesting, Captain Hoff, is you you are and continue to build a community and it's called Founder Space. Tell us about Founder Space. Where does one who is listening in find it and what do they do with it? So anybody who wants to connect with me, you want to, there's lots of my videos on there. There's lots of information. You know, we help startups. There's lessons, all sorts of things. Just go to founderspace.com. That's it. And there's a contact button. You can contact me. There are my books. Everything is on there. But if you're a social network type of person, I'm on every social network. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. Just search for Founderspace. Founder space. It's fantastic. And then let's let's finish up with, as I read at least your last book, Surviving a Startup, there was so much that I felt about the things that are not obvious to those and where you began the book. Perseverance, adaptability, persuasion, courage, temperament. That seemed to me the heart of the entrepreneur as you continue to build the mindset what do you want them to think in looking forward? What do you want the next evolution of entrepreneurs to think, to feel? And then what do you want them to do with all of those things that are available to them? I really want to encourage the next generation of entrepreneurs to think less about just building a big company, building you know, new products, but really take the time to think what impact this will have on society. Because already we have seen new technologies coming out so fast, governments can't keep up with them. They don't know what, they don't know how to regulate them. Yeah. We, have, we have technologies like Facebook out there, these companies that literally have, have networked all of us together, but they can also have a huge influence on, on how people think, on the dispersal of information or misinformation, on, on the stability of governments. All of this stuff has, huge ramifications. The next generation of technology using AI, using brain computer interfaces, using nanotechnology, 
using gene editing will have even more profound implications on the future of humanity. Right. So I, it, it, we're going to either we can put all this technology to great use and elevate humanity, or it could be it could really destroy us, even enslave us. So yeah. I want entrepreneurs to think about those problems. Like what? Let's look ahead. When we deploy AI everywhere, when it's making decisions for all of us, like when we're delegating our decision-making power to AI, which may be owned by a corporation, a government, some other person out there, what does that mean? Where, um, wh where, is, where are human beings in the process? Wh what decision-making is being taken away from us? Like even if we're giving it willingly, like we all of us willingly use these smartphones, but it's not so willing. Like without the smartphone, you can't function. In a future world, Without a brain-computer interface, maybe you can't function in a future world. Without AI, you know, planning your whole life, maybe you can't function. These are questions that remain to be answered. We have a lot of really tricky problems to navigate in the next 10, 20 years. I want the next generation of entrepreneurs to help us navigate those and solve those problems. Help them solve those problems. And that is a wonderful way to leave the show. Um, to all of you who continue to come in every week. And if you're watching us on YouTube, thank you very much. We appreciate you subscribing. And for those of you who are listening to us on the C-Suite Network and you download and listen to your convenience, grateful for that as well. We are available on Spotify and Apple, and you can always find me on chuckgarcia.com. But the most important part is to Steve Hoffman, to Captain Hoff for, for collaborating with us today and leaving you with the real practical advice. In fact, if you look at the, the, the subtitle of the book, the subtitle is Practical Strategies for Starting a Business, Overcoming Obstacles. But what I love about this, Captain Hoff, is coming out on top. And I appreciate the metaphor on that. We're mixing the ship and the mountain metaphor, which I'm grateful for. But Captain Hoff, thank you very, first of all, thank you for bringing your wonderful work and sharing that to the universe. Thank you, Chuck. I've really enjoyed this. Same here. And if you look behind Captain Hoff, the five forces make elephants fly, surviving a startup. There's your education. You could go to Columbia, you could go to Harvard or MIT or Caltech, but sometimes the best education is the thing that's right in front of us and the practical tips and the perseverance and the pain. They're not to be avoided. They're to be managed and embraced and to work with. And to Captain Hoff, it has been a real pleasure collaborating with you. I am grateful we came into each other's lives and I hope and I look forward to other times when we can collaborate again. Me too. And to our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. I am Chuck Garcia, wishing you a very good evening, whatever you are doing and tune into us next week. Thank you very much. I appreciate you listening to A Climb to the Top. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.